Thanks, Peter. So I do have a lot of dirt on Peter. If you want to know, just come talk to me afterwards, and I'll, I'll gladly share. Uh, so quick, hey, by the way, Grace, great job up there. So good job. Yes. Uh, quick introduction. I have a, I got a couple people from my team here. Where are you? Stand up. Oh, yeah, right here in the front. There you go. So this is three of our guys from our team. This is Henrique from Brazil. Yelta from the Netherlands, so you understood what he was saying. Yeah, and, and Michelle here from the U.S., they're part of our team. So go talk to them afterwards. They have a booth out there. Uh, and they are part of one of our ministries that I'll describe a little bit in a second uh, called No Longer Music. Uh, and then for those of you not familiar, I'll explain a little bit. But uh, in two weeks, they're going to be doing their annual No Longer Music send-off show. Uh, you can throw the slide up, and it's also in your bulletin. But this is an opportunity to see this band that uses the stage to communicate Jesus in secular places all over the world in a very creative, modern way. And for you to come and see it, it's a free concert. You can register. They're part of the band, and they're going to all be performing uh, on April 30th. So make sure you check Check that out. Um, all right, so real quick, God has called me to lead this organization called Steiger. It's a global organization, and our heart is to mobilize followers of Jesus to reach young people that would not walk into a church. And our vision is to raise up a radical missionary movement that will transform the global youth culture for Jesus. And so we do this in a bunch of ways, and one of the ways that we do this is by training and resourcing the church. And so Pastor Paul uh, and I were talking, and we're going to be bringing some of our training to Chapel Hill, including some of our new stuff. Uh, I'm releasing a book later this year called Spiritual Conversations for the Non-Religious, and we're going to be doing some workshops with Chapel Hill all about how can I reach people in my life whether it's people in my family or my neighbors or coworkers or whatever that are far from God, how can I introduce them to Jesus? How can I bring the gospel to them? So we're going to be bringing training to Chapel Hill, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, but before we go any further, let me do a, a quick personal introduction. I have a picture of my family, if you want to throw that up there. There they are. So I have four kids and one wife, which I'm told is the right way to do it, and we are kind of drowning in, in children at the moment. Uh, now, here's the thing. My wife's not here this morning, but even when she's not here, I feel like I have to give her a shout out because we live a crazy missional life, traveling all over the world, leading this mission, and it is, it's hard. And my wife is strong. She's a rock. She's all in. And if it wasn't for her and her, the strength that God has given her, I don't think we could do what we do. So I always feel like I have to give a shout out to my wife. So why don't you give her a clap even though she's not here? Yeah. Okay, so for those of you that, that like are unfamiliar with Steiger and our history, you're going like, what is this weird word Steiger? Like, what is, what is that all about? And, and so what it is, is it's actually a Dutch word that refers to where our ministry started in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands. And so I was born and raised in Amsterdam. And my parents, for those of you that are familiar, my parents were there in the early 80s as missionaries. And they had a heart to reach young people of the city that would not walk into a church. And so we lived right in the center of the city on the fourth floor of an apartment right in the center. And it was very, you know, by American suburban standards, it was a very unusual upbringing. 
right? My parents uh, would teach us how to go to school by catching the subway on our own. By the age 8 and 10, we'd catch the subway to school on our own, my brother and I. And we would avoid the drug dealers on the way. And we just experienced all kinds of things about living uh, in that environment. And it was a real privileged environment. And it's because my parents' ministry allowed us to experience God's power at work in people's lives. And so they were there in Amsterdam because they had heart to reach young people that would not walk into a church. In a city like Amsterdam, that's pretty much all young people. And they see these big, beautiful cathedrals. And they're dead and empty on Sunday. Many of them are actually museums. And so that's their view of God. Just a dead tradition of the past. Not relevant to my life. And so in that context, it was really the ultimate post-Christian context, my parents had a heart to reach these people. And so in the early days, my dad would take a small group of people, and they would go out into the bars and the clubs late at night, and they would befriend people and have conversations with people and share Jesus with them. And, and then they would take, they would write the names down of everyone that they met, and they would go out into the forest outside the city, and they would pray all night over the names of the people and, and just ask God, God, we need a breakthrough in this city. We need, to see, we need to see you move. It's such hard ground. And so they were doing this and praying. And after a while, my dad felt like God called them to start a band, a musical band, because they were spending a lot of times in the venues, in the music scene, and they saw how much influence the music had on the people they were trying to reach. And so my dad felt like he should start a band. And this was in the 1980s. So it was the height of the punk rock movement. And so my dad started a punk band. And he used the stage and he used the music to communicate the message of the cross. Because he knew that the message of the cross is the only hope for the world and that there is power in the message of the cross. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 says that, Christ, that Paul preached Christ and him crucified so that people would not be convinced by human wisdom but by God's power. And there is power in the message of the cross. And so they decided that they were going to use this band as a way to communicate the message of the cross outside the church. And right from the beginning, God's anointing and favor was on the band. And they started to get invitations to perform in clubs and venues and festivals all over the city. And, and through their concerts, people encountered the gospel and many started to respond. And so then they invited them to come to this rock and roll Bible study on a big red boat behind the central train station. Now, if you've been to Amsterdam, and by the way, the airport doesn't count. So if you've been to Amsterdam and you got out of the airport, then you've been to the central train station. And behind the central train station is a river, and there's all these piers that jet out, and the Dutch word for pier is steiger. So they, they named their Bible study, which eventually became church, they just named it the address. So I got a picture here to show you, just to illustrate this. I'm going to throw it up there. Maybe, there it is. So in the top left corner, that's the picture of the boat, the big red boat behind the central train station. And again, the address was Steiger 14, which meant Pier 14. So that's what they named their, their, their church. And that's me and my, my family in the bottom left corner and the band performing there. And this was the environment that I grew up in. And it was an incredible time where people who normally would have nothing to do with Christianity were reached and discipled through this ministry in Amsterdam called Steiger. And then eventually, this movement of Steiger started to grow. 
And this band that my dad started, which is called No Longer Music, which is the band that's going to be performing in a couple weeks that now my brother is the leader of. But this band started to get opportunities to go to places like communist Poland and the Soviet Union and, and eventually all over. And what happened is this movement started because the band would go places, people would get reached, Christians would be inspired, and then people would start to identify with this movement and they would say, we're part of Steiger. And so you'd have people in Germany saying, we're Steiger Germany, and people in Poland saying, we're Steiger Poland. And it wasn't even like a strategic plan, it was just a move of God. Where God birthed this missions movement of people that were passionate about reaching young people that would not walk into a church. And that was the environment that I got to grow up in. My dad would take me and my little brother um, on tour with him. And we would be in some like cynical nightclub in Eastern Europe somewhere, and they would be performing their concert. And then at some point, he would invite me and my brother on stage, and he would bring us on and he would say, these are my sons. I love them. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them. Everything that I have is theirs. And if someone tried to hurt them, I would protect them with my life. And then he would say, and this is how God feels about you. And he was equating a father's love for his children with God's love for them. And I saw people in that environment with tears in their eyes praying to receive Jesus. And when you experience something like that as a kid, I mean, it ruins you. It ruins you in the best possible way because you realize that following God is far more than this nice Sunday tradition or religious activities, but that he is real and that he has the power to transform lives. And so from, I had my own journey, but I, I end up joining the mission of Steiger and now eventually taking over and leading this whole global mission because I saw that God was real and that people needed to experience his power outside the church. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to just read about God's power in the Bible. I need to experience it in my own life. And if there was ever a generation or a culture or a time that needed to experience God's power, it's right here and it's right now. And we don't need more religious words. We need God's power. And here's my, my encouragement is that God wants to demonstrate his power through each one of us. That each one of us has a role to play in, in, in bringing his truth and his power out into the world. That, that our lives are far more than just survival. It's not just about, you know, get by, avoid pain, pursue pleasure. There's something far more to that. We have a purpose and a role to play. And so what I want to talk about today is this morning is how can we experience God's power? How can we be a vessel in which God can use us to demonstrate his power to a world that needs to experience that? So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to look at the book of Nehemiah. So if you want to grab your Bible, uh, chapter 1, book of Nehemiah, and we're going to be reading through the first four verses. I'll give you a second to look it up, and I'll read through it. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. All right, I'll read it to you. Here it goes. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. 
They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. All right, so here's the context. Nehemiah is part of the Jewish exiles in the Persian Empire, right? They, they had been exiled, and they're now part of this Persian Empire. And Nehemiah himself actually has kind of an interesting position in the empire where he's able to be a cupbearer to the king, which means that for him, things are pretty good, right? He's got a pretty good situation, uh, all things considered. But then what happens is so his brother and some people from Jerusalem come, and they tell, them, tell him about the situation in Jerusalem, how the walls have been destroyed and the city is vulnerable and there's great disgrace. Now, again, Nehemiah was in this position where he could have heard that and he could have said, yeah, oh, man, that's, that's too bad, right? Oh, too bad. I, 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 get so, I can't believe that's the case, but kind of, okay, and then move on, right? But that's not what he did. And I think the first thing we learn from this scripture is that like Nehemiah, we need God to open our eyes to the state of the world. I don't know about you, but it's so easy in our hyper busy, overscheduled, all kinds of distractions life to just get just numb to the state of the world, to get numb to the brokenness and the pain that is all around me because I'm just so distracted, I'm so busy that I don't even see it anymore. And, and so we need God to open our eyes to the state of the world. For example, even in our own country, we are experiencing a profound cultural shift away from a nominal Christian nation in which most people identify as a Christian in the past and saw the Bible as a good moral guide and the church is kind of a center of culture to a post-Christian society. So the fastest growing religious group in our country is the religiously unaffiliated. And it's not just like affiliation, it's also attitude. So in the past, people had a positive view, mostly, of the church. Today, increasingly, especially amongst younger generations, it's apathetic at best, I don't really care, and hostile at worst. And, and this is the environment we're in, and this isn't a distant problem, this is personal, right? Like we have people in our lives that, we're, that you can think of as I describe it. And so a lot, of, a lot of this shift that we've experienced in culture, I mean, some of it goes back to philosophers 200 years ago, but a lot of what has driven it to mainstream has been the emergence of something called the global youth culture. So global youth culture, think youth and young adults all over the planet that are influenced by similar voices. So they're following the same social media influencers, they're playing the same video games, listening to the same music. And so you have this global culture in which people are connected and similar on very, you know, things, superficial things like music and fashion trends, but they're also similar on deeper things like worldview and lifestyle and morality. And so you have this global youth culture that is influenced by things like pop culture and the entertainment industry, which is the point here is it's not just entertainment, it's shaping worldview. You've got YouTube stars that are 
connecting with the world in entirely different ways or, or other internet stars. You've got uh, video games, which is massive in terms of influence. There's a study a little while back that said the average 21-year-old male in the U.S. has spent 10,000 hours playing video games, which, by the way, is the same amount of time you need to master a fine art, right? So, it, so this is like a legitimate community for many people. It's a place where people find their identity and their sense of accomplishment, huge influence. And then lastly, of course, is, is pornography, which is so common, so pervasive. It's not even something to be ashamed of, and yet it's having a, a destructive effect where it's distorting our, uh, rewiring our brains and distorting our view on love and sexuality and relationship. And all these things come together to shape and form a global youth culture that is really transforming all of our culture and society. So to illustrate it, take a look at this picture here of these guys. And based on how they look and how they're dressed, could you guess where they're from? Now, I'll... I'll if anyone's bold enough to yell it out, go for it. You can, and if you, I'll keep it easy. Pick a continent. Anyone want to wager a guess? Come on, be, what's that? Ro, what, was that? Nice try, Peter. Brazil, what else? I can't hear anything, but I'm assuming you're, all, you're not guessing the fact that these people are from Lebanon, in the heart of the Middle East. But as Peter you know, pointed out, they look like they could be at a coffee shop down the road. Right? So it's a perfect illustration of this global youth culture. Now, the religion of the global youth culture is something called secular humanism. So what that means is this. God has been replaced. Man is at the center. And there is no outside authority that can tell me how to live my life. It's the era of my truth. And in this era, identity, purpose, and morality is self-constructed. I define those things. And that's, that's the, the, the culture that we're in. And if you pay attention, you see messages of secular humanism everywhere. So, for example, this is an Instagram post by a guy called Jay Shetty. He's a popular kind of self-help guru, pop psychologist guy. And he says recently, the rules are fake. Do what you want. Listen to how you feel and make decisions that honor your soul. That is secular humanism. Here's another one. This is a poster that I saw at a Starbucks, and it says, don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you that you can't be exactly who you are. Quoting Lady Gaga, that is secular humanism. And it sounds so good. It sounds so liberating. But the truth is, the consequences are destructive. It's like poison wrapped in bubblegum. Right? It's, it's all sweet and shiny on the outside, but the, the consequences are devastating because if you are the source of truth, you're going to end up confused. If there are no rules, you're going to end up broken. And if there's no anchor in the storms of life, you're going to end up anxious and depressed. And if it's all about you, you're going to end up lonely. And so these are the consequences of the secular humanistic worldview, and it's devastating. A while back, a, a non-Christian friend of mine from high school uh, posted on social media that his son, who is about the same age as my oldest son, had been diagnosed with brain cancer. And when I saw that, I mean, it rocked me. 
because I, I couldn't imagine what I would be going through if my little boy had been diagnosed with brain cancer. I couldn't imagine the fear and the anger and the, just the, the whole pain of it all. And then I looked at the comments on his posts, and this is what he was getting. Positive vibes. Sending healing vibes his way. Sending you all positive vibrations and much love. And then eventually he responded and he said, thank you everyone for the supportive words of concern and positive energy you have expressed for my son, Peter. And I couldn't help but think about how hopeless it all sounded. Because you see in the secular world, secular humanistic worldview, there is no transcendent hope. Just positive vibes. And it's devastating. And this is a culture that is overwhelmed with loneliness, anxiety, and depression. But here's the saddest part. They're not looking to the church for answers. And that's, that should break a heart because we have the ultimate answers to these things, to the cry of this generation, to the cry of our culture. Because Jesus brings truth to the confused. He brings healing to the sexually broken. He brings the ultimate relationship with our creator and the church. And he brings peace that transcends understanding. We have the answers to the cry of a generation, but unfortunately, they're not coming to us. So we got to go to them. We got to bring the love of Jesus to them. But in order for that to happen, for, or in order for me to break out of the, my normal way of living, I need something to change in my heart. We need to respond like Nehemiah in verse 4 when he says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. Because you see, the extent to which our hearts are broken is the extent that we're going to do something about it. It's not till our hearts are broken that we're going to get uncomfortable. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to change our lifestyle to pursue those that don't know him. Not until our hearts are broken. And here's the thing about a broken heart. It's, it's not like a workout program. Okay, starting Monday, you know, I'm going to start loving people. Right? You, it's not something that you can do. Only God can change your heart. But what you can do is you can repent. And you can say, God, my heart is cold. I don't care like I should. And it's not right. And I'm sorry. And would you forgive me? And would you give me your heart? You can do that. And if you start to pray that prayer, it's dangerous. Because he's going he's gonna to break your heart. And you're going to start seeing people. I mean, really seeing people. And the problem is, when your heart is broken, you cannot remain inactive anymore. You cannot remain passive. You've got to act. And so we need to ask God to break our heart for what breaks his and to awaken us from our apathy. And we need to recognize also that the battle that we're facing is not against people. This isn't about us versus them and those people out there. We are not in a battle against people, but we are in a battle. We are in a spiritual battle against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, like it says in Ephesians 6. And, and so we need to understand that. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so what does that mean? Is that we are not dealing first and foremost with a logic issue or an issue of persuasion. We're dealing with a spiritual blindness. It's a spiritual problem. 
So that means that if you're blind and I say, look at this wall, no matter how many times I point at it, you can't see it because you're blind. And so we have a spiritual problem. We need our eyes open. So our first response has to be prayer because this is first and foremost a spiritual issue. So like Nehemiah, we need to pray like never before because we're in a spiritual battle. It goes on to say in, in, in verse 4, Nehemiah says, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. All right, so his response to the broken heart was desperate prayer. You know, some biblical scholars estimate that Nehemiah actually prayed and fasted for four months before he eventually approached the king. So you've got to ask yourself, why, why would, I, would Nehemiah pray and fast so long and with such intensity? Why would he do that? And I think the reason is because when Nehemiah, when his eyes were open to the problem, when his heart was broken, he realized that he could not solve it on his own. He realized that the problem was bigger than anything he could solve. And like Nehemiah, we need to recognize that the mission we are called to that each one of us is called to, is not hard, it's impossible. No human strategy, no human resources, no cool program or anything that we can come up with will ever be enough. Our only hope is to get on our knees before the God of the universe, the one who holds it all together with his power, the God of the impossible, and say, Lord, have mercy. God, we need you to move and to get on our knees and to cry out to him because it's not until we, it, what we need is not more human strategy. We need a supernatural move of God. We need to God to move. 1 Corinthians 4.20 says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. We need God's power. And our, the only hope for our family, for our state or country or this world, the only hope is if God moves in a supernatural way. And here's the amazing thing. God loves to demonstrate his power through ordinary people like me and like you. He wants to use you to demonstrate his power outside the church. If you come to the, the Steiger International Training Center in Germany, where we train, we have a Steiger mission school there, and every year we bring together hundreds of young people from all over the world that feel called to be missionaries to the global youth culture, and if you go there at our center, on the wall, in big, bold letters, it says, God rewards those who seek him with a desperate heart. And it's a paraphrase of Hebrews 11.6, and it speaks to our value of, again, everything starts by getting on our knees in desperate prayer because our only hope is if he moves. But it's really interesting because if we are going to get to this place where God opens our eyes, he breaks our hearts, and we get on our knees in desperate prayer, then he's going to call us out. He's going to call us to step out. And so that means it's going to require courageous action. And so if you go to what I think is so interesting, let's if, look at this Hebrews 11.6 verse, and I'll read it to you. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and then he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And I think this is a really interesting verse, particularly the part that says anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. And I think it's interesting because the author of Hebrews is speaking to a Christian audience. So of course they believe that God exists. Why, why else would I come to him? 
And so you have to ask yourself, what is, the, what is going on here? What is your trying to say? And I think the truth is that it's easy to believe something conceptually, intellectually, right? It's easy to believe that something is true, but the true test of what I believe is how it impacts the way I live. That is the real indication of what I believe. So let me give you an illustration. I mentioned earlier that I was born and raised in Amsterdam. So my family started out, and uh, we lived in the center of the city, in the top floor of an apartment. And um, it was, you know, my white noise at night when I was trying to fall asleep was like people yelling out in the streets and throwing things. It was just that kind of an unusual environment. And one time, we, we were, what happened on the streets below is there was a, 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 a fans from an uh, out-of-town soccer team that was coming to play our, the, the, the Amsterdam team. And they, they, so, you know, in Europe, they have these hooligans, these soccer hooligans. And they decided, this big group of soccer fans, that they were going to pick a fight with the drug dealers in our neighborhood. So all of a sudden, you had these big group of uh, men on either side um, engaging in this big old fight on the streets down below. I mean, they were picking up rocks and chucking at each other and bottles and all sorts of shouts and stuff going on. I mean, you don't need TV when you've got that kind of action on the streets below. And so we're watching this fight take place. Super intense. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the battle, a single police officer shows up, gets out of his car, and charges right into the middle of the riot. And all he had was like one of those rubber batten things. And all these tough men who were fighting look at the police officer, look at each other, drop their weapons, and then run down the street together being chased by this single police officer. And then eventually I think the police officer realized what he was doing and like paused and did one of these, you know, and backed up and got in his car. But for a moment, that police officer so believed in the authority and the power of the one that he represented that he was willing to run into a riot. That is what it means to believe that God exists. That you so believe in the authority and the power of the one that you represent, that you will go wherever he asks you to go. That's what it means to believe that God exists. Now, to live this kind of life requires great courage. It requires courage. So what is courage? I actually love courage because courage is not the absence of fear, but rather a willingness to do the right thing despite the fear that you feel. If you Google the, the dictionary definition of courage, it says the ability to do something that frightens you. See, everyone faces fear. It's completely normal as you, as you walk out this life to experience all kinds of fear. Even the great apostle Paul, who did incredible things, where God moved through him in incredible ways, even he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, says, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. The great apostle Paul was so afraid that he was literally shaking. And that's good news. It's good news because that means that if you are afraid, you are in no way disqualified. Because God chooses to use us when we step through our fear. Not because we're fearless. So if you want to see God move in your life, you want to see the supernatural work of God and work in your life, you're going to have to step through fear. And you're, by implication, you're going to have to take a risk you can't have risk. You can't have faith without risk. Risk is intrinsic to our faith. 
Where, where there is no risk, there is no faith. And where there's no faith, there's no power. So part of following Jesus is taking Holy Spirit-led risks. Now, implicit in a risk is that you don't know what the outcome is going to be. Right? Like, you don't know ahead of time, how is this going to work? And you find yourself in a situation where you say, God, if you don't move, I don't know what's going to happen. So I'll give you kind of a, a wild, crazy example from, from a number of years ago. Uh, back, back in the day, I was touring with No Longer Music. Um, and one particular tour we were doing, it was in the Middle East. And we were doing some concerts in Turkey. Turkey's a hard place. 99.99% Muslim. People can be very close to the gospel. And we were doing a series of concerts throughout the country. And at one point, we arrived in a, in a city. And when we got there, uh, we found out that the concert that we were doing that night was actually organized by the local city government. I'm like, well, this is unusual. Uh, and we actually got a police escort into the center of town. And then when we got into the center of the town, it was like this big festival atmosphere. There was a, there was a stage and a banner and all these kinds of festival stuff going on, big atmosphere. And, and on the stage, there was a banner and there were some words in Turkish. And so I went to our, uh, our, one of our Turkish partners. I said, what, what does that banner say? And he looked at the sign and then he got a real kind of concerned look on his face. He said, oh, well, it says, welcome to the Ramadan festival. Now, it was the first night of Ramadan, and this town was celebrating and by having this festival, and we were the opening act. That's not normal, right? And so I was like, I don't, what are we going to do in this environment? If we're ever going to offend people, this is the environment, and you know, it's already tough enough here, and so I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll talk to our, our, the missionary partner that we work. He's been in Turkey for 30 years. I mean, this guy, I mean, he's a real missionary. He's been to jail multiple times. We, I'd like ask him, hey, his name's Wilson. I was like, Wilson, what's it like going to jail? And he's like, oh, it's great, because I can catch up on reading, right? Like, so like, this dude is a legit missionary. He will know what to do. And so I went up to him. I was like, Wilson, what do we do here? And he looked at me. He's like, I got nothing. I was like, thanks, Wilson. And so, so then I, and so then we're like, we got to pray. And, and, and it, um, the guy that was organizing our concerts, uh, his name was Shafak, and he, he, was, he had come to Jesus through one of our activities a few years earlier, and he had grown up in a Muslim family and had uh, fell so in love with Jesus that he wanted his people to know. And so he organized these concerts. But when, when we found ourselves in this situation, he felt deep concern for us. He felt like he would put us in this situation. And so he came up to us and he said, maybe you shouldn't say the name Jesus. Maybe you just should say God, you know, because that, that's not going to offend in the same way. And we were thinking, you know, we, wanted, we don't want to be stupid or reckless, but like, God, why are you have us here? And so we decided to go for a prayer walk and just to pray and say, God, show us what you want us to do in this situation. And we're out praying, and after a while, someone came up to us and said, hey, I don't know if you heard, but this town that you're in, it's about half a million people, not a single church. And I've just felt this strong sense from the Lord, if you don't tell them about me, who will? And we had no idea how this was going to go, but we felt the conviction the Lord had asked us to proclaim the name of Jesus at the Ramadan Festival. Our whole concert is a, is a modern depiction of the story of Jesus, including a death and resurrection, and then we end the show by saying, and his name is Jesus. And so we decided that we were going to do it. And let me just tell you this, we made the decision, but the fear never went away. I mean, during the concert, and I, we're getting ready for this moment, I was so afraid, I was feeling sick to my stomach. 
had no idea how this was going to go. We've had all sorts of kind of t- uh, interesting reactions in other concerts. And so we did our whole concert. We did the story of Jesus, the cross, the, the resurrection. And at the end, we said, in his name is Jesus. And then we invited people to respond. And instead of people throwing rocks at us or booing us, people cheered and rushed our response table. We had over 100 people sign up for the Bible Correspondence Course saying they wanted to know more about following Jesus and to receive Bible study material at the Ramadan Festival. Only God can do something like that. Only God can do something to take credit for something like that. That was so far beyond anything that I could possibly do. And that's that's the point, is when you are willing to step out and take a risk and put yourself in a situation where only God can move, that's when you experience his supernatural power. Now, you might be listening to this Ramadan story and going, that's too much for me. Like, I could never do something like that. And certainly not everyone is called to quit their job and start a rock band and tour the Middle East. Some of you may be. Not everyone. But every one of us is called to be a radical follower of Jesus right where you are. doesn't matter who you are, what you do, what your gifts are. Every one of us is called to be a vessel in which God demonstrates his power Every one of us. This is not just for special Christians or missionaries or whatever. This is for everyone. And so we need that courage. And so we find an answer where we find that courage in Acts 4, verse 13. When it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So where did, they, where, where did the courage come from? Was it from their education? Was it from their talent? What was it from? No, it was from an intimate relationship with Jesus. The reason that Peter and John had courage was not because they were smarter or more skilled than other people. It's because they had an intimate relationship with Jesus. And their confidence came from a deep trust in Jesus and not themselves. The closer you draw to Jesus, the the more intimate you become with him, the bigger he becomes and the smaller the world becomes in comparison. That's where we get our courage, not in myself, but in him. And it's such a liberating thing because it's not about me anymore and what I've got and my talents because it's all unlimited. But it's about him. And that's where we get our confidence. That's where we get our courage. And you see, courage is, is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. And courage is more about a thousand small daily decisions than it is that one big one. It's about a lifestyle of saying yes to God, one step at a time. That as you seek him and say, God, use me, he speaks to you and you say yes. Day after day after day. And he builds your muscle of courage. You see him moving and you, you continue to grow in your faith. And then one day, you are standing in front of your own Ramadan festival situation. Something crazy and impossible in which God moves in a supernatural way that only he can get credit for. And that's what the world needs. We don't, we don't need more words. We don't need more religious activity. We need God's power. And so here's what I want you to take away from this. Ask God to open your eyes to the state of the world. Again, we get so numb. We get so busy. Ask him to open your eyes so that you can truly see again. There might even be people very close to you that you've grown numb to. Ask God to open your eyes again and then ask him to break your heart for what breaks his. Ask him to to truly break your heart so that you can no longer remain inactive or apathetic. You have got to move and let your first move be to your knees in desperate prayer. Because you realize that the problem is so much more than you can handle. 
And that the only hope is that we have a supernatural move of God. So get on your knees and pray desperately. And then when God speaks, and he will, he will speak to you. When he speaks, have the courage to say yes. I promise you, if you live this out, you will experience God's supernatural power through you. So can you please stand with me and let's pray together. Lord, we'd, Lord, I don't want to just talk about you. I don't want to just play church. I want to experience your power and reality in my life. And so, Lord, I thank you that I know that is the heart of this church. I know that is the heart of Chapel Hill, Lord. And so I pray that you would, you would bless us by opening our eyes to truly see the world as you see it, that we would not be distracted anymore, Lord, that the, the busyness of life would not dull our senses, that we would truly see what's going on in the world. Open our eyes, Lord. Let us see. And then, Lord, break our hearts. Lord, I'm sorry for my selfishness, my apathy, and it's not right. It's not right, Lord. So I pray that you would forgive me, and I pray that you would break my heart again every day so that I would so that I would truly have a broken heart for what breaks yours, Lord, and that I could not remain passive any longer. Lord, I pray that you would draw us to our knees in desperation. I pray that you would move in a supernatural way through us and that you would guide each one here, each one of us, to that next yes. What is that next yes, Lord? Show that even now, Lord, I pray that you would be speaking to all of us to reveal what is that thing you want us to do? Who's that person you want us to talk to? What is that thing that you've been asking us to do that we've been holding back on? Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to say yes. Because, Lord, we don't want more talk or religious activity. We want your power. We want to see a world that is far from you and that is falling apart encounter you afresh. And, Lord, here we are perfect, unschooled, ordinary people. But Lord, we don't depend on ourselves, we depend on you. Our confidence is not in ourselves, Lord, it's in you. So thank you for this time, thank you for this church. I pray that, the, that what is spoken here that is of you would stick and it would not just be a nice message, but it would have an impact in the way we live even today. So Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you choose to use us. So here we are, send us, Lord. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Be courageous for Jesus. God bless you as you go and have a great Sunday.